So let's say that hypothetically an instructor came and wanted to start from the ground up with implementing OERs. Where would you start and how would you talk about the incentives for them to work through finding, evaluating, and utilizing OERs? So I would always start with looking at their objectives and trying to figure out what is it that the materials that they already have, what is it that's missing and how would the OERs benefit that or where would it be able to supplement? Because I would never recommend an OER without a reason for it. So I would start out with that conversation with the faculty first and then decide what is it that we need to supplement and start to look there. You sound like an instructional designer. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's in my title. (laughs) You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In this episode, we'll be discussing some strategies for moving beyond the textbook for learning materials. The evolution of the internet and related media technologies has sparked something of a renaissance period for the development and sharing of rich, engaging learning materials. Now virtually anyone can become a producer and publisher of content. Although the idea of sharing instructional materials is hardly new, we are fortunate to have some emergent frameworks and tools to work with as we wade into the world beyond the textbook. One of the most widely known is the concept of an Open Educational Resource, or OER for short. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, also known as UNESCO, published this definition of OERs in 2002. The open provision of educational resources enabled by information and communication technologies for consultation, use, and adaptation by a community of users for non-commercial purposes. In 2012, UNESCO collaborated with other stakeholders to establish the World OER Congress, and they further developed the definition of OERs as teaching, learning, and research materials in any medium, digital or otherwise, that reside in the public domain or have been released under an open license that permits no-cost access, use, adaptation, and redistribution by others with no or limited restrictions. So practically speaking, this means an open educational resource could be virtually anything, from a single image to an entire course, as long as the materials bear no cost and are openly available for use in terms of copyright. From an instructional design perspective, we recommend educators begin by considering a couple factors when selecting resources. Educational fit. Does the content meet educational goals without being overbroad or too deep? Credibility. Was the content developed by a credible source, such as an institution of higher education, government agency, or reputable foundation or organization? Before we move into our discussion about that scary copyright word, although not strictly required, as many materials exist in the public domain as a function of how, when, or by whom they were produced, much of the OER universe utilizes the construct of Creative Commons licensing. We could spend a whole episode of Instruction by Design discussing Creative Commons, but in a nutshell, it is an organization that facilitates sharing of creative materials and knowledge. They provide a set of standardized, freely available licenses that can be applied to any type of work. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from the Academic Innovation Team at Arizona State University College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are Celia Katraitiwa, Aaron Kraft, Stephen Crawford. Great. So to kick off this panel discussion, the first thing I'd like to ask you all is to what extent you are familiar with the practice of using open educational resources. Have you ever done so in your own teaching? 
Yeah, so what's interesting is is that I have been a teacher for eight years, both online and face-to-face, and I have never even heard of open educational resources, at least while I was teaching. And I think it's kind of a shame because I really could have used them. I would put hours and hours into creating material or interpreting a textbook where I could have actually been taking advantage of these resources that are so ubiquitously shared uh, from other teachers around the world. So I sort of regret not having been made aware of that. And I think it sort of points to the bigger issue that not a lot of teachers necessarily know that these exist. You know, and what's ironic is that the very first time I even heard of OER was in a textbook uh, during my graduate days while I was studying uh, instructional design. So it was through a textbook that I learned about moving beyond the textbook. Which is interesting because in my K-12 days, I lived for free resources. So I was constantly out looking for OERs um, and supplemental resources to what I was teaching in class. So I used these quite a bit. Um, I was constantly searching for things that would help out with um, group work that my students could just go to on their own. I would look for things that I could use uh, for whole class teaching. Um, Some of my favorite ones were, of course, Khan Academy, which is a huge one. Um, And then Read, Write, and Think was another favorite of mine. It seems like Khan Academy Academy really brought OERs into the mainstream. Uh, Yes, I would agree. I know that when I was in that um, environment of K-12, I didn't realize that these were called OERs at the time. I didn't realize that there was a name for them until I came into higher ed. So yeah, I think Khan Academy really brought a lot of that out. See, I'm going to disagree on that Mm because I have a longer relationship with OERs that go way back before Khan Academy. I think it's the current wave Mm -hmm. that most people associate with OERs. Mm -hmm. And I think that unfortunately, at the same time, diminishes the great history of OERs. You know, when I started working with this uh, topic, we called it... um, we call it a different type of topic. We'll call it reusable learning objects. The idea was that faculty would get uh, grants from NSF in some cases and other foundations to create a nugget of instruction that could be shared with others. Um, within the military, this was a huge topic. Uh, I was working at a university where we were working with the, the beginning of what was then called SCORM, which was the model for how these objects would work within a a learning management system. And we're talking 15 years ago. We're talking pre-YouTube. So this is definitely before Khan Academy. And the the problem the military was trying to solve was if the Marines buy a a training module on on how to repair a Humvee and the Army and the Navy is using the exact same model Humvee, do they go buy their own model, their own module for that same training topic or do they just use the same one and plug it and plug it in into their different systems? And that was kind of the military point of view. Um, California, there was a, a great resource and still is uh, called Merlot. It was really about how do we encourage this with faculty? And this all predates Khan Academy. I mean, this we're now talking almost a twenty-year history on the open educational resource size, and I'm sure the re- reusable learning object goes even further beyond that. Um, from my point of view and my experience, I have worked in trying to create some of these objects in the past, but a lot of it's about consuming it. And I think it's really good practice for us to consider this 
there are some institutions and some uh, degree programs that pride themselves on that every course has course materials that cost $40 or less because we think about these expensive textbooks, but yet there's all these free resources out there that we can use. There's some great points, Stephen, and I just wanted to add that I'm glad you brought up reusable learning objects um, by way of definition, because some may have heard of that, but not heard of open educational resources. And one of the reasons, I think, is that uh, RLOs, reusable learning objects, don't necessarily always... Um, get published in a way that they're open. They may be within an institution and reused, and your military example is perfect. If they have proprietary training that they share across different branches, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would license it with Creative Commons and publish it. Well, just plain discoverability is a pain in the neck. Yeah. I mean, how do you find these things half the time is the hardest question to answer. Absolutely. And um, in conversation, we've already touched on two big areas where you might explore OERs, Khan Academy and Merlot. Where else do you find OERs? How do you go about looking for them? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I just sat down with a faculty member over the last two weeks, and we've been having this conversation. So, you know, my two go-to places is Merlot. Sounds just like the wine, Merlot.org. And, and that's a, they, and I've had some training with Merlot. So, you know, I've, I've, I've had some of their peer review training and I understand what goes into it and their mindset is they want to be the Google for higher education. They want, or Google for education in general, they want people to go here and find these objects. The problem is you'll find a lot of objects that are very current and very old that may not work with current technologies because they're built on Java or flash. Another place that I recommend going to is OER Commons. Um, yes. That's a really great spot to go to. Mm -hmm. uh, the same. Uh, that's the one I was going to say was the OER Commons where you can kind of filter through subject and see what, what's out there. But again, it's the same thing. Who's keeping up with the content is the hardest part. You really have to kind of check to see that the content is up to date. And it's not necessarily something that you can just jump in and say, ooh, I'm going to use this this morning in class. It's something you really have to make sure that it matches and works with what it is that you're teaching. Yeah, I mean, and, and, it, and again, once you get outside those commons and these, these great directories, where do you go from there? And the answer is, I don't know half the time. I mean, you can go to YouTube and you can search for materials that may be licensed but now we get into the whole another issue of how what's the quality of it um you look at um the cdc hosts materials you know a number of government agencies host materials a number of uh research agencies have provided funding for some of these materials but yet where do they get posted uh and that's been a a, a huge question a lot of times they get posted to a faculty member's website who got the grant and so you gotta play a google search uh, working with this faculty member, we did find a couple of directories that were linked to different uh, professional uh, associations. So there are a number of professional associations who are hosting their own repositories. But man, finding them is not easy. That's a great point um, about institutions that may be curating or developing their own OERs. Uh, in my experience working with interprofessional education, practice, and research, I found that there are a number of grant-funded institutions out there that are building and curating really excellent materials for health sciences, but they're not necessarily indexed in OER Commons or any of the other aggregators. And when they're hosted by these agencies, it goes to the point you were making, Celia, about the credibility. I mean, 
and and how how well are these done? I mean, and, and, the, and the term often used is curation. You know, we as instructional designers or faculty, we have to curate this collection to make sure it's it has the correct uh, breadth, depth, and currency, and that's another layer on top of everything. So you were talking about um, how sometimes it's difficult to find the resources. What do you think Khan Academy did to where their resources such a it became such a big name? YouTube. You think so? Well, that's part of it. I mean, everybody knows YouTube, mm-hmm. right? That's true. Um, but yeah, somehow it took off in a way that the others, because like my own, my family, my dad knows about Khan Academy. You know, he doesn't know about other OER repositories, but he knows Khan Academy. So yeah, they did something right. I'm guessing part of it's YouTube. I, I want to say YouTube coupled with a TED Talk, coupled mm. with Gates Foundation funding. Oh, there you <laughs> go. Yep. Yeah, good point. All right, so we talked a little bit about what and where. Um, Let's talk a little bit about how. So let's say that hypothetically an instructor came and wanted to start from the ground up with implementing OERs. Where would you start and how would you talk about the incentives for them to work through finding, evaluating, and utilizing OERs? So I would always start with looking at their objectives and trying to figure out what is it that the materials that they already have, what is it that's missing? And how would the OERs benefit that? Or where would it be able to supplement? Um, Because I would never recommend an OER without a reason for it. Um, So I would start out with that conversation with the faculty first, and then decide what is it that we need to supplement and start to look there or start to search. You sound like an instructional designer. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's in my title. Yeah. And and the alignment, it's an important piece. Um, You know, there's, when we talk about an OER, we, we don't often talk about what is it. And, and even Merlot will admit that it can be anything from the entire course itself down to a single image. And with that in mind, the question could be, well, I might look at a textbook. There are open educational resource textbooks out there. There's a company out there who that's what they do. They create these OER textbooks and you can buy them as in a print edition. You could download it for free. But for me, the real value is the fact that most OERs you can remix, you can do something with. And that is very different. And some some people listening might be thinking, well, when I download a journal article or link to a journal article in my institution's library, isn't that the same thing? And the answer is maybe not. And I say maybe not because if it's a purchased item by the, the university or the, or the college, and that's licensed, and you can only, you know, it's all that stuff. You can't do anything with it except for post it in your course. Um, and the same thing can be even said for the open access journals. It's the same model and mindset. But the idea behind OERs is that you can customize it, as you were saying, Celia, for your, your instance. So if you're teaching something and you find a resource that fills a gap, and it comes with a bunch of extra stuff that you already have covered, you can actually cut that out, and that and that and that's a great thing from an o, from an OER textbook standpoint. You may only need a chapter out of that whole book, and you can now make that chapter available for free because it's as an open educational resource. Or maybe you don't need the whole chapter; you just need certain passages from it. I mean, it's it's a way to think about things from from the maker culture of you can you're not just stuck with whatever's given to you. You can actually modify it and do other things with it. I would also look at taking something like 
a text, a piece of text that the students need to read, and maybe looking at maybe looking at it in a way of how can I make this active, and finding OERs that allow for more active learning. Maybe they're doing something with the knowledge. There's plenty of OERs out there that have um, game types of activities that they might be able to use that the textbook doesn't necessarily give. Um, one example that I like for just studying in general is um, the website Quizlet, which is a, an excellent free resource that allows students and faculty to create um, vocab cards or skill cards. And it's just, it's an active piece that you can do with, let's say, an iCourse or a fully online course that they might not be able to get through just reading a text. Now, see, I've used Quizlet before, but I created the questions. Mm -hmm. Can you take questions that somebody else or, or uh, you know, digital cards that somebody else has made and use those? Yes, there really? are already cards that are pre-made oh, that okay, others yeah. have created and then allowed others to use. So um, you can find all kinds of things. I mean, I've seen it with... Uh, restaurant management classes where there's already cards created mm. for them. I've seen it, um, you I'm know, with health related. Yeah, I'm thinking pharmacology. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of those terms, you could you could take a collection of pharmacology terms mm -hmm. and cut out the ones that don't apply to your class. Yes, and then focus just on those. Mm, yeah, go. so yeah. you're not having to build your own from scratch. You can pull from others. Why didn't I know this? <laughs> <laughs> These are all really great ideas. I love that. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about um, some of the barriers or perceived barriers to utilizing OERs. And I'm going to kick out the first one because I think it's a big one. The question of quality. If you're potentially thinking about um, where an OER might supplement your own instructional materials and you're concerned about finding things that truly are of an appropriate quality level, what do you say about that? It's an important question. And, and it's one of the, I think it's a, it's, you know, we talk about the various barriers and Merlot's approach to solving this problem was to provide some peer review and, and rating. And so some of their objects are peer reviewed or peer reviewed. Some have star ratings to show what other people who've used it think about it. You can see the number of times that supposedly people have used it. And that I think is a really interesting approach. It kind of, it's kind of the iTunes model when you think about it mm. or the Amazon model, how many stars did this get? Um, and that's a neat way to start when you don't know when people are, when the community is contributing it to a, re a resource. I like the idea of that professional association having their own resources that were created by grants and an essential repository because now there's a this implied seal of approval by that organization. So if and I'll pick on the CDC again if the CDC is making materials available then there's an implied, you know, sense that these materials are accurate and current because it's coming from the CDC of all places. I also like to remind faculty to remember that textbooks come with errors. There's no, it's not a zero-sum game. There's nothing that's perfectly precise in every way for every situation for every course. It's just a consideration. You know, I don't know if it's a barrier necessarily, but it seems more of a reality that OERs can't necessarily take the place of a textbook, or can they? It, it, from what I can tell, it doesn't seem like you would get the comprehensive uh, knowledge for your directed or, or applicable to your course through OERs like a textbook could give you. 
Does that make sense? It does. And, and you know, I'll, I'll say that the answer to that question is yes. A textbook sometimes is the central knowledge piece. It's easier. I think it's the word I'm going to use. It's mm. easier to outsource that content curation to a publisher and then, ha- and then have them sell it to the students. Mm. Um, because it's all it really is, is all you're really doing is, is in that case, when you use a textbook is outsourcing the content curation mm-hmm. and they, mm-hmm. and the publisher may have gone out and said, okay, we're going to hire these three people to edit a book or write the book from scratch of this one person. Whereas another faculty member may say, you know what, I'm going to do the curation myself because my topic is so new and it's so broad. I'm going to curate everything because there is no one book out there that does that. So therefore, yeah, it does replace the textbook. Whereas in the first case, it's supplementing the textbook. So it seems like it depends how much effort the instructor really wants to put into curating the materials. And hopefully the right materials are out there somewhere, which it seems to be a thriving community. So there's a good chance that you'll find a lot of what you need. And and sometimes when you can't, create it yourself. Share there it. There you go. Yeah. You know, um, uh, there's a lot of faculty who, you know, you know what? I have enough background on this. I can write and create these pieces myself. I can create this. I can create my own textbook chapter or create my own graphics because I have access to equipment. I think part of it is some of the the incentive in doing it is the fact that you're lowering the costs of education for your students. And that, that, right. that that's a motivation right there. There seems to be like an inherently altruistic bent to the idea of OERs. Like we want to create materials so we can, uh, so they can be accessible to more people uh, to students who may not be able to afford a textbook, for example, or just they don't want to spend $500 on a textbook, right? But also to the people across the world um, who don't necessarily get access to education from uh, a U.S. institution. But if that instructor puts it out there, guess what? Now, if they have an ICT infrastructure in place, they can download that material from the Internet and learn from it. And, and I've seen one faculty member who selected a, pu- a publisher's textbook and told the students outright, this is the least hideous book I could find. Oh, jeez. So if that's what you're doing, maybe OER is the way to go. Mm. That's a great connect back to the United Nations organization. And I think you're absolutely right, Aaron, in pointing out that it's it's got an altruistic philosophy behind it. One thing that I recently learned, um, there's an organization called the Commonwealth of Learning, and they issued a research survey in 2016 to over a thousand respondents in over 10 diverse countries. And 82% of the instructors who use OER reported that the, the, the quality of the materials was good or excellent. I think that's a pretty resounding number. Yeah, I think the people who are doing the work really care. That's and, what it sounds like. And yeah. sometimes it's student quality work coming out of projects they were doing for class that when you do some digging in, you find out you, it kind of surprises you and it's highly, it's completely accurate. Are there any other barriers that you, or perceived barriers that you would like to touch on? I'll say the C word. So copyright, I know, scares the heck out of a lot of people and and rightfully so because you, you hear about it in the media quite a bit uh, from time to time. And one of the things that you see often with Things that are designed to be OER, especially the last couple of years, is they're using that Creative Commons license where it clearly communicates all you got to do is not use this in a commercial setting. Um, so, higher ed, congratulations. You're In most cases, you're not a commercial setting. Um, if you are, you know, give attribution to who created this originally, if you make changes to it, 
share alike with other people so other people can see what you've done. And that's very popular in the software area where people might modify um, a piece of code and, and improve it and then make it available again. Um, those types of th- the ability to remix to me is, is I think the power because you can really bring your context into that nugget of knowledge. You know, on that point, and in, in, uh, Jeanette mentioned the word renaissance in the intro, right? And uh, sort of going back to the uh, philosophy, the altruistic philosophy, is this, sorry, I don't mean to usurp the host here, but I did have a question I wanted to pose. Is this the democratization of knowledge? Are we making knowledge? Uh, is it finally now available to everybody, not just uh, the privileged few, but literally to all people around the world? Have we, is that what this is? I think the United Nations would agree with you that that's the goal. <laughs> I mean, it sounds good, right? Obviously, like we were talking about, there are barriers to this, but have we reached that point, though? You know, Probably still some work to do, but it's a good start. <laughs> it's a good start, yeah. Right, right. Well, great insights. Thank you all for sharing your experiences and ideas for moving beyond the textbook. This was a great discussion of the philosophies and possibilities for using open educational resources. We encourage you, our audience, to expand your horizons, think creatively, and explore existing resource repositories such as merlot.org and oercommons.org. Thank you for joining us today in our conversation about open educational resources with Aaron Kraft, Celia Kuchwatiwa, Stephen Crawford, and myself, Jeanette Senecal. Also, a special thank you is also due to our amazingly patient producer, Ricardo Leon. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Oh, man. Well, coming from K-12, we live for free resources, I'll tell you that. Um, I used quite a bit of OERs when um, in my teaching days. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is good start. I've never seen a car go off the cliff so well. <laughs> oh, this has to Leave happen at least once. <laughs> <laughs> dot dot dot. All right. <clears throat> um, where should I start? The beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, what was the question? <laughs> Is that going in the cut? All right, <clears throat> that's all trashed. <laughs> <laughs>